Good morning, and thank you once again for coming out to Gateway Taze Valley. My name is Brian Dillon, and I'm the campus minister here. There for a second, I almost said student minister. I almost reverted back. Uh, if you're sick of seeing me, uh, I am too. I'm sorry. This is uh, the best the best you get today. Uh, but here we. I'm glad that you all are here. The year was 1853, and America was getting ready to hold, for the first time in New York City, hold the first World's Fair in America. And the organizers, in preparation, they built an exhibit hall called the Crystal Palace so they could uh, show off and showcase the latest and greatest inventions. And it was there that a man named Elisha Otis stole the show by pulling a stunt for the ages. I mean, this is exactly the type of place that you want to pull off this type of maneuver. This is the type, the stage that you want to go big. And Mr. Otis, well, he definitely went for it. He was the inventor of the elevator safety brake, but he was having a hard time selling his idea to safety first skeptics. And so he decides that the World's Fair is the place to prove that his safety brake is, in fact, safe. Now, we actually have an artist's rendering of this moment here. And you can kind of see in this picture that Mr. Otis is up on an elevator platform with the crowd down below. And above him is a rope that is holding the elevator in place. And so Mr. Otis, he stations an axe man above the platform, above the elevator shaft, ready on his command to cut the rope. And so there he is with everybody, all eyes on him, all eyes watching what's going to happen. And he yells, cut the rope. And the axe man cuts the rope and the elevator falls, but only a few feet. Otis then announced, all is safe, ladies and gentlemen, all is safe because his safety brake had worked. And so did the sales pitch. And what a sales pitch. When Elisha Otis cut the rope that day, well, there were only a few buildings in New York City that were taller than five stories. Because let's be honest, who wants to climb that many stairs? See, there were no elevators because they weren't safe. There was no elevator safety brake. And so there weren't any buildings more than five stories because nobody wanted to climb that many stairs. But in 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building for the first time on Broadway Street in New York City. The rest is history. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that were classified as skyscrapers. Fast forward 100 years, and according to the Otis Elevator Company, the equivalent of the world's population goes up and down in their elevators every three days. When Elisha Otis cut the rope that day, he changed the world forever. And there are times when playing it safe is risky. And that might sound a little bit backwards. How can playing it safe be risky? Safe and, and risk, those two are opposites. But there are times when your greatest risk is playing it safe and taking no risk at all. It maintains the status quo, which means that your situation, well, it it can't get any better. And this leads to what is called inaction regret. According to some psychologists, at the end of our lives, most of the regret we have will not be from the mistakes that we've made, but from the opportunities that we've missed. It's the woulda, coulda, shoulda that eats at us most of all. And there's no doubt that when we take risks, we're going to experience failure from time to time. That's 
part of life is failure. But we said before that the greatest, the greatest measure is not the failure, but how you react to the failure. See, the greatest things are never achieved without some risk being involved. The greatest plays in sports are often the result of a player taking a huge risk. When you ask your crush out on that first date and you get all nervous, you're risking rejection. Now, for some of you here this morning, the bigger risk was actually saying yes when the person asked you out. There's a risk at quitting your solid job for the job that you're passionate about. See, cutting the rope is a risk, but it's the only way that we can get to cutting the ribbon on our goals and our dreams. And so today, our message title is Cut the Rope. We've been going through this series, Win the Day, to help us accomplish more and stress less. And we're going to be talking about standing up or falling down in full confidence for what you believe, or in our case, who we believe. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, you can turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and I'll meet you there in a few minutes. In his book, Deep Work, Georgetown professor Cal Newport talks about a concept that he calls the grand gesture. The grand gesture can take many forms. It, it can be a romantic ge- gesture, and like getting down on one knee in a public place and proposing to your sweetheart. It can be a physical gesture, like taking one of those before photos in the mirror when you start a new diet or exercise program. It can be a creative gesture, like what some missionaries would do a century ago, where instead of packing all of their belongings in a suitcase, they would pack it in a coffin instead, because this was a one-way trip. They didn't expect to come back. Simply put, a grand gesture is a defining decision, a calculated risk, a selfless sacrifice that, com- that becomes a defining moment in your life. For me, in the summer of 2012, I was driving home from my job in the total loss department at State Farm, and I felt like God was just calling me to do something more. This moment had been building for a couple of years, a series of events that led up to this afternoon drive home. Now, I had been volunteering with the student ministry at my, at my church, and I, I was loving it. I had actually, up until that point, the, the sad kind of the realization was, from my early teen life on, what I tried to define myself with was dating relationships. I, I guess I bought in too much to the pop songs or like the TV shows, I don't know. But that was my life. I was trying to find the one from way too early on. And there was a lot of disappointment that had come from that. So here I am in my mid-20s, constantly let down. And so eventually I just decided I'm kind of done with it. And I'm just going to throw myself into serving at my church. And I'm going to be that super volunteer that's there when when they need me. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll go on all the trips, whatever it looks like. I, I would even use my vacation to go for a week at church camp or to the student ministry events just to be a part of it. And I began to struggle with my day job when I had scheduled off a week of vacation for a week of camp, but at the last minute they said, oh, sorry, you can't go, seniority rules, and you don't get to go on your vacation. And I remember thinking that day that that was the first time that my day job had gotten in the way of me serving Jesus and his church. So it was on that summer afternoon in 2012, after a day of arguing about car values on total loss vehicles, that I felt like God was calling me to do something more. 
And six months later, after a lot of prayer and, uh, oh yeah, a wedding too, uh, we, Ashley and I, we were moving from Ohio and everything that we had ever known, our, our parents, our family, everything, and we were moving to Maryland. And we were newlyweds, moving farther away than we had ever been from our parents into this complete unknown, and, and nobody, we didn't know anybody. We're getting into ministry for the first time. It was a lot of change. And I'll never forget asking Ashley if she was on board. We had accept, when they had offered the position to me, I asked her, are you on board? Are you sure that you want to do this? And she said, well, I don't want to get eaten by a big fish. I don't want to be Jonah and, and ignore the calling. And so we took a risk. And while it hasn't always been easy, and it still isn't always easy, God has done some really cool things since then. That was what Newport would call the grand gesture that got me into ministry. But it was the culmination of a series of defining moments that led me to where I am today. There were small steps of faith that led to giant leaps. And I bet if we looked at your story, there would be tipping and turning points along your journey as well. There are going to be big God moments in your life that you'll always remember. Moments when you take a stand for what you believe in. Moments when you change the trajectory of your life. Moments when you, like Elisha Otis, declare to the world that you're cutting the rope. Mark Batterson says that there are days when decades happen. When so much happens. When things so impactful happen in a single day that you'll remember it for decades to come. When there is an event that changes the trajectory of your life. These are the moments when things change forever. Moments like when Martin Luther posted 95 statements on a Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 1517, declaring his grievances against a corrupt church. Moments like when a young black woman named Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, December 1st, 1955. These are points of no return. These are grand gestures that change the course of history for many. Now, your grand gestures may never make it into a history book or, or be remembered centuries later, but that doesn't make them any less important or impactful for your life. If you want to win the day, you're going to need some grand gestures. And this idea of cutting the rope, of making these grand gestures, well, it isn't a new idea by any means. The Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is full of these moments. Moments like when Noah built the ark in a day of no rain because he believed God. Abraham placed his only son, the son he had waited so long on, the son that had been promised to him, he placed his only son Isaac on the altar because he believed God. The Israelites, they circled Jericho seven times on day seven because they believed God. David took a small stone and slew a giant because he believed God. Esther fasted for three days because she believed God. Elisha burned his plowing equipment because he believed God. Ezekiel laid on his left side for 390 days because he believed God. James and John, they dropped their nets because they believed God. Peter got out of the boat. Zacchaeus climbed up a sycamore tree. The Ephesians burned their pagan books all because they believed God. Back in the spring, it was one, in one of our small group meetings that somebody in our group said something super impactful that has stuck with me even to this day, that as Christians, the things that require the most faith sometimes make the least sense. 
And so as you look at, you read through that list, you listen to that list, so many of those things, why, why seven times? Why on day seven? Why would you make somebody lay on their left side for 390 days? That doesn't make any sense. What good is that going to do? Well, it, says, it doesn't matter what good, it's going, what good you're going to do. It's what good God is going to do if you're faithful. All of these are grand gestures. Days when decades happened. And they are cut the rope moments that changed lives forever. And what happens in Mark 4.35 is no different. Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples, they've been out at the lake all day and they haven't been barbecuing. Uh, Jesus has been teaching in parables to the crowds and also teaching the disciples as well. And as evening approaches, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now the NIV says that he is by the lake, but the lake is actually the Sea of Galilee. And here's what you need to know about the Sea of Galilee. It is 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. So this let's go to the other side business is a little bit easier said than done, especially when your engine is guys with oars and a sail. And so this is going to take a little while to get over there. And it was going to be dark soon. And being on a big body of water, when it's dark out, can be a little bit scary. And so like the examples we just listed, this might be another one of those, you want me to do what now, Lord, type of moments. And then Mark writes, leaving the crowd behind. So wherever Jesus went, a crowd usually followed. He was doing and saying things that people had never experienced. They'd never seen anything like this. And so friend or foe, crowds would follow just to see what he was going to do next. I mean, imagine a constant paparazzi following you around, and they're crying out to you and insulting you and touching you. Some of you might refer to this as mom. Uh, but some of you might hear this, it's just Strangers touching you, grabbing you all the time, just trying to get a, a, a hold of your cloak. And some of you are just getting the heebie-jeebies, just thinking about a bunch of strangers touching you. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not, you might get COVID. I don't know. But it, all these things. And because of all this, because of these constant crowds, because of this constant pressure, Jesus would withdraw from the crowds from time to time, usually to pray, but maybe just to get away from it all for a little bit. Sometimes I think we need to leave the crowd behind as well sometimes. Sometimes we just need to disconnect for a little bit. And I'm not just talking about your one-week annual beach vacation. By all means, take that. But we need to disconnect a little bit more than one week a year. We talked a little bit about this last week, and I think maybe the Holy Spirit wants somebody to hear this message because Mark Batterson talked about this when he talked about cutting the rope as well. See, Mark Batterson, he believes that consuming social media is a little like eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I tend to agree. We just weren't created to know everything, about everything all the time. We weren't created to know all that's going on and have an, a deep knowledge of all this stuff, all the world's events as they happen. Last week, I talked about how we are constantly leaving our reality to consume media that has nothing to do with us. We throw ourselves into the events of other people's lives or into the events of cities that are thousands of miles away instead of paying attention to those who need us to be present right where we are. 
And I agree that some of what is happening in the world is really upsetting. And I'm not saying that we deny its existence or pretend that it doesn't matter or pretend that it doesn't, uh, it isn't happening. But if you want to make a change in the world, investing in those around you will make a much bigger impact than any well-crafted social media post. So how do you leave the crowd behind? Well, the average person spends 142 minutes a day, 142 minutes a day on social media. That's nearly 15% of your waking hours. At the end of your life, do you really want people to say he spent 15% of his life on social media? Now, I can be as guilty of this as anybody. I have, uh, Twitter has been my social media of choice since 2007, which is pretty soon after it came out to the public. I've been on it so long that my username is just my name with no numbers. That's, I, I've been around on there for a while. And, and there have definitely been days that I have spent more than that 15% on social media. And I've always used Twitter for more news than anything else, but I had this, this realization I talked about last week, this realization that even without posting, even if I'm just looking at it, even if I'm just consuming without creating, I'm allowing negativity and this arguing into my psyche that wouldn't be there otherwise. And so I've been trying to be more mindful of my time on there to see if it affects my daily attitude at all. And I have to say that I think that it's helping. I think we could all benefit from a, from a phone or a social media fast every month or so. A lot of people ask about fasting in today's world, and I think that a, a phone or social media fast can be beneficial because it takes away the distractions and allows you to hear from the Holy Spirit more. All right, back to Mark chapter 4. Mark writes, Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Now, the NIV here says furious squall. The NLT says fierce storm. The ESV says great windstorm. However you want to describe it, one thing is clear. This was a big storm, and it was scary. Now, the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, and it's, uh, but it's surrounded by hills and mountains. And they were called the, they're called the Golan Heights. Back then, they were called the Decapolis. And with this topography, the Sea of Galilee was very susceptible to sudden and very violent storms, the type of storms that we would name if they were headed towards the U.S. coastline. And in verse 38, Mark writes, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Again, here's Jesus. He's sleeping. He's, he's, not, out, he's not trying to, to, to do more or study more. He's sleeping. He pulled away from the crowds to rest and recharge. We just, we can't keep grinding and pushing and hustling 24-7. You have to rest and recharge sometimes. Continuing on in verse 38, the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And what an interesting reaction and statement from the disciples here. Like just because Jesus is sleeping, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care for them. It means that the storm isn't causing Jesus to panic. Sure, it's causing panic amongst the disciples. I mean, this isn't just like a, a call like, hey, hey, buddy, hey, uh, 
hey, there's something going on. If you could just wake up for just a second. Some of, some of the guys are up there, and they're really, like, um, they're really panicking. And so if you could just wake up for just a second and just take care of this, that'd be great. You know, kind of like you, that soft voice when you try to wake somebody, like, just nudge them. No, the, the, the disciples run, and they go, Jesus, Jesus, teacher, don't you care? We're going to drown. We're all going to die, and you're just sleeping, right? He, they are in full-on panic mode here. And, and we, we can laugh at that a little bit and, and smile, but we react sometimes the same way to our own life circumstances. We find ourselves in different situations, and we automatically think, well, God must be sleeping, or God doesn't care. He, he's going to let me drown. Or we want to blame him or, or, or somebody else for our troubles. So here's the thing. It's much easier to act like a Christian than it is to react like a Christian. We can put on a show most of the time, and we can act like a Christian, but when we're in the middle of the storm, when things are truly hitting us, our true nature will come out. It's in those moments that your faith, or lack thereof, will be revealed. Listen, our our words matter. The things that we say matter. They're like an x-ray of the soul. And in our culture, everybody is blaming everybody else for everything. As Christ followers, though, we have to stay humble and stay hungry. We've got to stay calm and carry on. Be that non-anxious presence that we talked about a few weeks back. If we truly believe that Christ has overcome this world, then why get caught up in the meaningless quarrels and the anxiety of what's to come? Why get caught up in the fighting and the angst as if this world is all that we've got? If we believe that Jesus has overcome the world, that he has an authority over this world, then we shouldn't be acting like the rest of the world. And so this morning, I want to ask you a couple introspective questions. The first is, how much of what you're saying is a regurgitation of the news channels that you're watching and the social media that you're consuming? And how much of what you're saying is a recitation of the revelation that you're getting from God's Word. And perhaps most revealing, if you're consuming more of the news channels and social media than you are God's Word, how is that going to affect your answer to those questions? We tend to put out what goes in. When I was in high school, I remember being taught garbage in, garbage out uh, when it came to the TV shows and music we listened to. Anybody ever heard that uh, as well? I remember being in high school, and one of my uh, student minister sponsors was talking about this. I can remember it so vividly. And I can remember us all rolling our eyes like, dude, you don't even understand. We are fine. You're being so dramatic. It's not that big of a deal. But as you get a little bit older, you realize, okay, that might actually be a little true. There's just something about us as humans that emulates what we hear or, or see when we've been around it enough. We watch enough of a show that we can quote the lines, that certain life situations bring about what we've seen on TV. We learn the lyrics of our favorite song. It's actually kind of amazing that our brain is that awesome, that it can withhold these things, and it's always there. Uh, Maybe when you spend enough time with somebody, you start acting like your best friend or maybe your spouse. Not necessarily in a weird way that you like take over their life or anything like that, but just little mannerisms, things that you find funny, then you start acting those out as well. But in a deeper way, 
We can also start taking on somebody's belief system or their morality system because we agree with them on another issue start going, hey, they actually are onto something. If you watch enough cable news and you'll not only become more convinced that you are right, but that the other, the other side is so wrong that they should be hated and that they're evil. Consume enough social media and you'll start to take on the views of your favorite people that you follow. These days, every YouTube star seems to have views on politics and, and where our culture is at. I, I don't know how that happened, but it's happening. And so you like their videos and then pretty soon you believe what they believe. And the worst part is that the change in you will be so subtle that you probably won't even see it. Over time, it's going to be a slow burn, but you'll be different than you were. And like a frog in a boiling pot, by the time you realize what's happening, it's too late and you're cooked. Don't fall into that trap. Don't let the voices of our culture create your mindset and dictate your reactions. Just calm down and carry on. Take another deep breath and listen for the calm voice of God. Watch what Jesus did here in verse 39. Mark says, uh, he got up and grabbed an oar. No. Uh, He got up and he started bailing out water. No. What he says is, he, Jesus, got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. See, what we would have done is grabbed an oar. What we would have done is start bailing out the water. But if Jesus would have done what we would have done, he wouldn't have had any authority over this world. No, Jesus got up and did what only Jesus can do and calm the storm. Now, we, ought, we suffer from something called hindsight bias, especially when it comes to the Bible, because we know how all the stories end. We have the benefit of knowing the end, right? So every time we read a story in the Bible, we just kind of assume the beginning, and in a way, that takes away all of the, the wonder and the awe and the surprise that comes with it. I mean, just try to picture Jesus in this moment. The disciples are freaking out, right? Because there's a huge storm. There's a huge, fierce storm here, and they're probably grabbing the oars and bailing out the water. And they're trying to figure out why Jesus isn't helping. But Jesus never gets excited about it. So just, you know, you just try to picture his, the calm of his motions, The almost smile on his lips, the twinkle in his eye when he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they, the disciples, were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, they were starting to find out who he was, weren't they? They're starting to find out that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he is the master of the land and the sea. He made the wind and the waves and they obey him. They're starting to find out that they can trust him, that they can cut the rope. And so can you and I. In the storms of our day, we need to trust Jesus. In humility and godly wisdom, we need to stand in the gap as peacemakers, as grace givers and tone setters. Because that's the way Jesus Jesus never panicked. And if we have Jesus on our side, then we can believe that he's got this all under control and be that calm presence. Karl Barth said that we should take a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other and read both. But we should interpret the news by using the Bible, not the other way around. 
Because if we get this wrong, it can wreck our worldview and our faith. Listen, as believers in Jesus, we are standing on the platform while the world is watching. We are all Elisha Otis with the whole world watching, waiting for us to fall. You have to imagine that the people there that day thought, this guy's going to kill himself. That's what's going to happen. And like a bad car wreck, I want to be here to see it happen. Because this, this guy is going to fall, and we're all going to be here watching. And, and you got to imagine, you know, they're, they're spreading out like, like, we'll stand below it because you're going to end up in it too. In a lot of ways, we as Christians are Elisha Otis standing on that platform. The world is looking up and they're saying, boy, they're going to fall. And I can't wait for it to happen. They believe in somebody that doesn't even exist. And I can't wait to see when they fall. And so they are looking for a reason to to shout us down or to tear us down, looking for any little way that they can get in there. But instead of fighting back or shouting back like we so want to do, we need to cut the rope. We need to demonstrate a grand gesture as we demonstrate our complete trust in a God who's got this. And we need to make a habit of doing it. See, our, our weapons are not earthly weapons. The, 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 the world wants to fight with early, earthly weapons, but our weapons are not that. Our weapons have the power to demolish strongholds. So we don't just fight fire with fire. We shift the atmosphere by operating in the opposite spirit. We rebuke hate with love. We rebuke pride with humility. We rebuke cursing with blessing. We rebuke lies with the truth. We rebuke, rebuke injustice, with, injustice with righteousness, racism with repentance, and cancel culture with grace. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but with the powers of the ruler of this world. So who are you going to trust in this fight? So this morning, haven't you had enough of it yet? Are you sick and tired of the evil that's going on in our world, or even in your own life? Then it's time to cut the rope. And there's two ways that we do this. We kneel down and we stand up. Last week, our focus verse was 2 Chronicles 7.14. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There's a man named Rodney Gypsy Smith who was born on the outskirts of the city in 1860. And he had no formal education, yet he lectured at Harvard. He grew up in a gypsy tent, but he was invited to the White House by two different presidents. I'm sure when he walked into places, they thought, what are you doing here? Where, where did you wander in from? He crisscrossed the Atlantic Ocean 45 times, preaching the gospel to millions of people. In 1860, One day, a group came and asked him, how, how can God use us the way that he has used you? You ever seen somebody speak with just a power, with a passion? You go, man, I want what he's got, right? How, how can God use us the way he's used you? And Gypsy Smith, he answered, go home and lock yourself in your bedroom. Take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the floor. Then kneel in that circle and pray fervently that God would send revival into that circle. See, we, we, we pray for revival a lot. We pray for revival in our church and in our community and in our city, our state, our country, in the world.
But there's a lot of times that we forget to pray for revival in the most important place of all. And that's in us, in that circle. Friends, that's where revival starts. That's where it's got to start. It has to start in the hearts of you and I, otherwise it's not going anywhere. So we have to kneel down, but then we have to stand up. In January, on January 30th, 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at First Baptist Church when he received word that his home had been bombed that night. And later, as he was sitting at his kitchen table, he heard a voice, Martin, do not be afraid. It was the defining moment for Dr. King. I, I think a lot of people would have retreated to safety, but Dr. King rebuked the wind and the waves. He said, you may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principles, some great issues, some great cause, and you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you'll lose your job, or you're afraid that you'll be criticized, that you'll lose your popularity, or you're, you're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot at you or bomb your house, so you refuse to take the stand. You may go on and live until you're 90, but you're just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. The cessation, the cessation of your breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of spirit. See, that's how you exercise spiritual authority. You, you kneel down, and then you stand up for what you believe in, and then you do it all over again. And again, and again, and again. You kneel down, and you stand up, and you kneel down, and you stand up, and you kneel down, and you stand up. Friends, whatever it is you're facing this morning, it's time to cut the rope. It's time to kneel down and pray for revival in your heart, and then take a stand and believe that God is still in charge, and He can handle it. It's time to cut the rope and rely on Him, because you believe He's got this, that the forms of your life that you're facing right now, that he has the power to calm the waves and the wind. And you do that by kneeling down and then standing up and then kneeling down again and standing up because let's be honest, the world has a lot of storms that it likes to throw at you. And so daily, we kneel down and we stand up. And we repeat this cycle throughout our life, believing that he loves you and he cares for you and he'll always be there for you, even in the storms of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your immense love. That you make promises that you were always there. That if we would turn to you, that you would heal us. That you would forgive us of our sins and that you'd heal us. And Father, we just we thank you that we have a God that we can come to that can, that can handle anything. Father, we're so thankful that no matter what might come our way, that you have overcome all. And so, Father, I, I, as we sit here this morning, I know that there are those that are dealing with some storms, some hurricane-force winds right in their face. And it's dark, and they don't know how they're going to get out of it. And, Father, it can be really hard to trust in you in those moments. And so, Father, I, I just ask that you would give those that are struggling right now a strength to trust in you and know that even though it might not make sense to us, even though we can't see a way out, you're still working for, those of you, for the good of those that love you. 
that you still love us, that you still care for us, even when it might seem like you're sleeping, you're still there. I pray that you would give us the vision to see that, the wisdom to know that you're still there, that you still love us. I pray that we never forget that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus, that this was the proof of your love, that you would send your son Jesus to die for each one of us so that no matter what happens in our life, we can look to him and know that he can calm the wind and the waves, not in the ways that we might go about it, but in better ways. I pray that we would be non-anxious presences and in this culture, in our world, that we would not fight back against people, but we would fight in ways that people might not understand because we know, as Christ followers, we know that there is more to this world. So we're not gonna get caught up in meaningless quarrels We're not going to get anxious about what is to come because we know that one day we will get to inherit eternal life, a place that there is no more pain, there are no more tears, there is no more sickness, but only you. Father, I pray that that would give us a confidence and a hope that extends beyond this world, that we know that this is not our final resting place. And so whatever happens in this world, whatever comes our way, that we can know in our hearts that this will pass one day. But in the meantime, I pray for comfort and for strength for those that are dealing with things, that they would know that you love them and you're still working on their behalf. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and the hope that comes with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you've never given your life over to Christ, and we talk a lot about a hope that extends beyond this world, but Jesus also says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can enter into heaven except through me. And so the sad reality is if we don't have Jesus in our life that this world is it. This is all we got. And so all the pain that comes with it, all the storms, this is it. So if you've never given your life over Christ and said, I want you to be the Lord of my life forever. I want to give all my decisions over to you. I want to make myself available to you. If you've never made that decision, then there's no better day than today to make that decision. Say, I want to follow him with the rest of my life. I want all these witnesses to see that my old life is gone and I am a new creation in him. My sins have been forgiven and I accept him as my Lord and Savior. So that one day you can be in eternity with Jesus. So that that might be the greatest gift we could ever have, that our sins would be forgiven, washed away, and have a hope that extends beyond the troubles of this world. So if you've never made that decision, I'd love for you to come forward. I'd love to talk to you about it. We can baptize you today in front of all these witnesses and celebrate with you that you've made the most important decision of your life. If you've already made that decision and you just need some prayer right now, and life is hard and, and there are storms that come over and over again sometimes. Sometimes you can't, right after you get through one, you can't even see straight yet. Another one comes in. And it can seem like God is sleeping, that he's not there. But I promise you that he is. And he's still working on your behalf. And I'd love to pray with you. We don't fight with earthly weapons. We fight with the most powerful weapon, and that is prayer when we involve our God into the process. So I'd love to pray with you this morning. Maybe you want to wait until after the service. I'd love to pray with you after or any time during the week. You can go and scan the QR code and fill out our information card for a prayer request. Our staff prays over those every week because we believe that is the most powerful weapon. So if you have a decision to make or you just need some prayer this morning, I'll be right down front here. I just ask all of you stand and sing now for our final song.